Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. If you're newer with us, we're going through the book of Romans. We're on our fifth week of this, and we are not uh, going, you know, like, um, you know, verse by verse, like an exhaustive sort of study sort of deal. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but sometimes we forget that these letters were written as letters to people. And when the, um, the folk in Rome, when they got this letter from Paul, do you think that somebody stood up in front of them and said, okay, now... We've got this letter from Paul. We're going to take a look at chapter 1, verse 1 today. And next week, we're going to take a look at chapter 1, verse 2 next week, and so forth, like at a snail's pace. Nothing wrong with that. But sometimes when we do that, when we break it down so minutely, um, we lose the overall thought, the overall flow of what's actually being said. Uh, And so we have to be reminded, I have to be reminded, that these are letters that Paul writes, that we read, or that Peter, whomever is writing these New Testament letters. Um, These are letters written, and it's helpful, for me at least, to read them as such, not in individual little, you know, small sections or or, or things. So what we've decided to do is to look at these in a a, a broader 35,000-foot view overview of this letter, meaning we're not going to turn over every single rock and, you know, look at every single verb and say, okay, what was, is that, you know, aorist tense, you know, future tense, like, is this perfect tense? Like, what's going on with these, you know, verbs and the conjugations thereof? There's a place for that. And we've done that with different things. But with this, we're looking at the overall view. So we've been in this for only five weeks and we're already in chapter four. When we went through Hebrews several years ago, we were in Hebrews for months and months and months. Like, I think over a year, 18 months, I think it was, in the f- f- 14, 15, 16 chapters of Hebrews. So we're definitely not going slowly through this. We want to get the big picture of what's happening. There's a couple of key verses at the very beginning. Uh, chapter 1 that I want to remind us of again today, probably remind us of all throughout Paul had never been to Rome. He wanted to go there several times, but he had not gotten there yet. And so he is writing them a letter to basically tell them by letter what he would have told them in person. So when he went to the Galatians, he didn't write a pre-visit you know, visit letter to the Galatians that outlined the whole gospel. He went there into the churches in the Galatia area, modern-day Turkey, and he just went around and told them everything. And then he wrote them letters later on to remind them of stuff. But he had never been to Rome. And so the glorious thing we have now today, thousands of years later, is the basic outline from A to Z of what this gospel that Paul proclaimed was because he actually had to write it down for the Romans. 
And so his preamble or his beginning, like this is our mission statement. He says, talking about Jesus, through whom Jesus, we have received an, an, a, a grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. So Paul's mission was to bring Gentiles to obedience of something. And see the, the natural thought when you hear the word obedience, you're naturally thinking obedience to commands, to rules, to laws, to do's, to don'ts. But Paul says, no, this is an obedience of faith. And we've been using a synonym for this word faith because faith can sometimes just kind of be nebulous in its word because we use it so much. What's anybody remember the, the synonym we've been using for faith? Dependency. I'm not saying that's a perfect synonym, but it helps me at least really uh, materialize an, a sort of immaterial sort of word like faith. Got to have faith. Dun, dun, dun. Like, what does that mean? And so it's dependency. That's what that's what I want us to think on when we think, especially in chapter four, when we start talking about this guy named Abraham today. So he wants to bring Gentiles to obedience of faith, not an obedience to Moses, not an obedience to the Mosaic law, not obedience to Judaism, but the obedience of faith for this is another key verse here from chapter one in the righteousness it in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How is the righteousness of God being revealed? Paul says it's from faith to faith. And then from there, where do we go? To faith. It starts with faith, continues with faith. So at what point, according to Paul's gospel, does a believer, a Gentile or Jew, but when does a believer move, progress from, okay, Jesus has saved me. Now I need the list of 17 things to do in order to get closer to Jesus. When, according to Paul, does that transition take place? Everybody say, never, never. It starts with dependency upon him and how tomorrow is righteousness going to be revealed. It's going to be revealed by dependency and then more dependency and in dependency upon him. Is he ever going to lead you to manifest something other than himself? You see, this is this is faith. This is dependency. This is where the rubber really meets the road. If we live in dependency upon him, is he ever going to manifest something other than him? See, it's when we get it's when we walk away from dependency upon him and try to depend upon the flesh or depend upon rules that then the flesh starts to be dependent uh, manifested. He gets into that. He gets in that heavily in, in, in Galatians, but he'll even get into that in chapter six and seven here in Romans. So the righteous man lives by faith, by dependency. If we want to be just right, OK with God. We start with dependency upon him and we continue in dependency upon him. So that's like, that's really, in my opinion, if we don't see this in chapter one, we're never going to really understand the rest of the book because it's all the, the book is an explanation of how this works. He started back in creation in chapter two and chapter one and two and how creation itself with the fall of Adam, it spun this whole thing into chaos and the root of the problem is the wickedness and the evilness of the heart, of man's heart. And we can put all sorts of laws into, into the books, but it's never going to change the heart. We talked about this last week in chapter 3, that the law was given to diagnose a problem. And what was that problem? Death. 
It reveals sin and death within us. But can the law be the plan by which that death becomes life? And, and the answer is no, much to the chagrin of many. The law cannot bring about life. And so what can bring about life? And that's where we're starting to get into. That's where Paul wants these people whom he's never met. He wants them to see the futility of trying to find life in something that simply diagnoses death. We talked about the MRI machine last week. Anybody remember the MRI machine illustration from last week? An MRI machine simply diagnoses there's something in you that's wrong. But no doctor worth their salt is going to say, now that the MRI machine has diagnosed this tumor, here's your treatment. Lay underneath the MRI machine for the next six weeks until the MRI machine takes care of it. That's not how it works. You get outside of that MRI machine, you go find treatment. And I think that's exactly the purpose of the law, to show we, we are, we, man is placed under the law to show the wickedness and the evilness and the problem, sin in the flesh. Now, Paul says, check this out, this is from last week, but now, apart from the law, we get out from underneath it, we run from it, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law, witnessed by the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how this righteousness happens, by faith, apart from the law. We don't go back to the MRI machine to get fixed. We say, thank you. Thank you, MRI machine, for showing me where the mass is. Now let's go get some treatment apart from the MRI machine. We say, thank you, law. Thank you, the knowledge of good and evil, for showing me that I'll never match up, never measure up. But now we go away from it to find the true source of, of righteousness, which is faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God being justified as a gift. See, here's the real issue in their culture and in ours today. There's gotta be some, I've got to bring something to the table. This can't be just free. This can't be just a gift. I've got to bring some, some skin in the game. I've got to. And Paul is saying that's not the gospel. At least that's not his gospel. Being justified as a gift by his grace, not by earning something through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. For we maintain, remember how we emphasized this last week? I think there were other people, this is just review, there were other people who maintained something different. You can read that in Galatians. Galatians chapter 1 and 2, Paul clearly talks about some other people who are maintaining something different than he did. We maintain, who's the we? Paul and his group. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So not by the works of the law, but apart from the works of the law. All right. So that was last week. Paul makes some pretty bold statements last week that man is justified apart from the law. If you've ever been in court, which I've not, I mean, I've been in some little things, but never like in a big, like O.J. Simpson sort of, you know, setting, you know. But if you've ever been in court or seen some court dramas on TV, you know that the opening arguments, there are some bold statements made by the prosecutor or by the defender, some bold statements. But at a certain point in time, the prosecutor, the defense attorney, they have to pony up. They have to prove 
what they've made their statements in their opening arguments, right? Well, Paul made some amazingly bold statements in his, quote, opening argument there in chapter 3, that righteousness comes apart from the law. All right, Paul, that's a great, you know, more power to you, but you've got to prove that now. How are you going to prove that righteousness comes from apart from the law? Because the whole system of law, and let's don't think of law simply as the Mosaic law. We can, but it's the whole system of our goods outweighing our bads, our goods being helpful in getting us into heaven. And Paul's saying righteousness comes apart from that. It has nothing to do with that. So how, Paul, are you going to prove to us what you're saying, that righteousness comes apart from the law? Well, Paul, like a skilled lawyer, he goes ahead. He hasn't met these guys. He just knows what they're going to ask because he's had the same conversation with a thousand people. And so he writes chapter four. He said, what shall we then say? That Abraham, our forefather in the original Hebrew, a Greek, it says our forerunner, our forefather, according to the flesh, what did he find? So here, here's how he's going to start his proof, his evidence that faith comes apart from the law, he's going to go look at the person Abraham. And he's asking, what did Abraham discover? Abraham discovered something, but what was it he discovered? Let's see what he talks about with this guy, Abraham. Brief history of Abraham, for those who might not be up to snuff on their genesis. Abraham was actually his second name. Who remembers Abraham's birth name when he was given at birth? Abram, that's right. Abram is Hebrew for great father. Pretty cool name. Ab is, uh, is, is father. And I guess Ram is great, I guess. I don't really know. My three semesters of Hebrew were like, you know, I'm glad that's over. Um, but uh, but Abram, great father. Does anybody remember how many kids great father had? Yeah, zero. How would you like, you know, being named great father at the you know, at the water fountain at work, you know, what's up, great father? How are those kids doing? Kind of embarrassing, isn't it? Well, great father had zero kids. And in their culture, and certainly ours today as well, but in their culture, your value of sorts was assessed by your ability to carry on your name through your progeny, through your sons, through your children. And so God came to Abram great father, and said, great father, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to give you so many children that you can't even count them. The suns, the, the, the stars of the heavens and the, 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 the uh, sand and the seashore won't even compare to the children I'm going to give you, your descendants. And how many children did he have? Zero. And why did he have zero? Does anybody remember why? His wife was barren. Sarah, her womb was broken. Her womb was dead, Paul will say later in chapter 4. Her womb was dead. No ability to have children. So it wasn't necessarily even Abram's fault. Great father, there was, a, there was an issue that he couldn't control outside of his control. But God promised that he'd be the father of many nations. Well, the point is, if Abram, great father, was going to be a great father... God was going to have to do something about it. God was going to have to intervene. And Abraham believed God. And by believing God, he was depending upon God that God would make a miracle happen. Because God promised you would be a great father. 
Well, years pass, no kids. Abraham does this thing with Hagar. We won't get into that today. But God changes Abram's name. Remember? He changes Abram's name from great father to what? Abraham, which means father of many nations. And oh, by the way, um, Ishmael doesn't count. So take out Ishmael. How many children does father of many nations have? Zero still, because Sarah's womb is still dead. So Abraham is faced with, I either believe God or I'm not ever going to have any kids. So Abraham chose to believe God. No law, no deed could bring about children according to God's promise. But Abraham simply believed God. And in Genesis, it says that Abraham believed God, and Paul will quote it here in a second, and as a result of believing God, he was credited as righteous. So what was it that Abraham believed in his context? Let's get this. This is so cool. Abraham was believing that the only way for him to have a son was for God to intervene. The only way for life to come from this dead womb that life could not create on its own because it was dead was for God to do something about it. That's what Abraham believed. And as a result of believing that God was the one who was going to bring life from death, Abraham was credited as being righteous. So Paul talks about Abraham and how this righteousness came about. He says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, Abraham, if he was able to bring about God's promise by his own flesh, then Abraham could have been like, hey, look what I did. I did it. I brought about God's promise. But what was Abraham faced with? He was faced with a wife who had a dead womb. And there was no way for Abraham to be able to boast in his ability to bring children into the world because of death, the death of, Ab of Abraham's wife's womb. By the way, by comparison, the first son born into the world, born to Adam and Eve, his name was Cain. Cain actually means, look at me, I got one. So Adam and Eve named their kid, look at me, I got one. You hear the pride? Hear the boastfulness in that? Look at what we did. Look at what we made. I think perhaps they were thinking Cain was going to be the promised one that God had promised in chapter 3 to, to reverse the curse. But they said, look at what we did. But Paul here talking about Abraham, if he's justified by works, he could boast about it like Adam and Eve did. Look what we did. We created life. They boasted in Cain. And by the way, does anybody remember what the one that they boasted so proudly in, naming him even, look, we got one. Anybody remember what he did? He killed. He killed his brother. Is that something worth boasting in? So what man boasts in is utter failure. But God made it so that with Abraham, there was no way for him to boast. There was no way for him to be like, look at what we did because Sarah's womb was dead. So great father has zero kids. And so instead of great father, like Adam and Eve, instead of him being like, look what I did, great father, Abraham, the only way for him to boast would be like, look at what who did? Look at what God did. Look at what I did versus look at what God did. For what does the scripture say? 
Abraham, he's quoting now Genesis, believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. So Paul is using Abraham as his evidence, as his as his uh, uh, um testimony of his uh, of, of, of proving why his statement of righteousness comes apart from the law can be true. Abraham believed God and was credited as righteousness and belief believing depending trusting equals this righteousness. Now to the one who works so he's comparing works versus faith works versus believing to the one who works for righteousness or works in general his wage is not credited as a favor a gift but as what is due to him let's let's just imagine you've worked all week long you've labored hard at your job whatever your job is you worked hard harder than you worked any other week and your boss comes up to you puts his arm her arm around you and says man you know you have really worked hard this week so hard this week that you know what i'm going to do for you this week i'm going to give you a paycheck this week would you be like oh thank you so much i don't deserve that you'd be like Wait a minute, I thought you were going to give me maybe something on top of that paycheck. The way that you made that sound. But what Paul's point is, a wage, if you work for something and you get something, that's a wage. That's just what you do. But faith does not come that way. But verse 5, but to the one who does not work, the one who doesn't labor for the thing, but the one who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, that's God himself, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. So Paul is making this point that Abraham is the one who didn't work. He couldn't work. Sarah's womb was dead. He couldn't make it happen. But yet he was credited, not by earning it, not by creating a child. In fact, if you remember, when he did go around with Hagar and create a child, God showed up and said, no, no, that's not what we're talking about. Sarah, the dead womb, will have a child. And he quotes even David, who says, David also speaks of this blessing on the man whom God credits righteous apart from works. Paul's message, this is not by your doing. It's not by your deeds, but completely by your dependency. And he quotes David from Psalms. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And so Paul is saying it's not only, it's not only Abraham that we can look to, but it's David has been talking about this amazing blessing that's a gift, this gift of forgiveness, this gift of not taking sin into account. Now he gets back to Abraham. Now look at Abraham. When did this blessing come? Is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? Meaning, who is it that can receive this blessing of total forgiveness? Who is it that can receive this blessing of complete uh, removal of sin where the Lord no longer counts their sins against them? Is it on the circumcised that get this blessing, i.e. those who do the law? Or is it on the uncircumcised, those who have no clue about the law? Now look at, he says in his answer, for we say, oops, that shouldn't say faith. I should say we, for we say, remember how we say versus what someone else says? 
Paul is saying, here's what we say. For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. That's what we're contending. Like, again, you see these two lawyers. One saying, this is what we're saying. Unlike them, they're saying something different. Who's the them? It could be a variety of different people. Again, I think he talks about them in Galatians. But what they're saying, they're saying that righteousness, okayness with God, union with the Father, fellowship, intimacy, they're saying something different. We're saying that it comes by faith in God. And this is the bridge burner. You know what a bridge burner is? It's something when you walk across something, you say, I'm going to go across it and I'm going to burn the bridge so I can't go back. This is the bridge burner for Paul. Does this blessing of forgiveness of sins, this is blessing of not taking sin into account, this blessing of righteousness, of complete and total okayness with the God of the universe, does this come and is this given to the circumcised, to the Jew, to the one who keep the law, or to the uncircumcised also? And remember, circumcision, that just simply is uh, uh, referring to people who are keeping the law, to Jews. It's not simply just the one act of removal of foreskin. We say it's just faith in, 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 in God. They say something different. How did it work for Abraham? And again, I just see the skilled lawyer, and he says, Your Honor, we enter into, you know, how's the saying go? Uh, evidence, you know, exhibit A, Abraham. How was it credited? How was Abraham credited as righteous? Was it while he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised? Which was it? I see Paul asking the, uh, what are those people up there? The jury, you know, which was it? Was he circumcised or uncircumcised? Because what we're getting out of Jerusalem, what we're getting out of people who do believe in Jesus, but they're adding Mosaic law to it, the Judaizers, what we're getting out of them is that you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to become a Jew in order to be credited as righteous. But what about Abraham, our father? Was he credited with righteousness based on his circumcision or was he still uncircumcised? And he answers the question. Because a good lawyer never asks a question that he doesn't already know the answer to, right? Not while circumcised. Read it for yourself. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, Abraham believed and was credited as righteous. So Abraham did nothing according to the law. In fact, if you were to ask Abraham, how is that law keeping going? Abraham would be like, what law? Because Abraham existed generations before the Mosaic law came about. And so Abraham didn't do anything to be credited as righteous. He simply believed. The answer to the question that Paul gives for his day is the same answer that we need to realize today. How, how are we made okay with God? Is it by doing? Did Abraham do something or did he just depend? Did Abraham behave a certain way or did he believe? Did Abraham try something, try to do something, or did Abraham trust? How did it work for Abraham? Because however it worked for Abraham, that's the precedent. He's our father for how it works for all of us. Abraham was credited with righteousness as a gift before he was circumcised, before he did anything to believe. And Paul goes on to explain this further. 
because somebody in the audience, some, some member of the jury is going to be like, wait a minute, but, 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 Paul, uh, but Abraham was circumcised, wasn't he? And the answer is yes. And, and Paul answers, he says, he did receive the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith with which he had while uncircumcised. So Paul's saying, yeah, he did get circumcised later, but even his circumcision was a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. So he's even saying his circumcision was just to show that he had faith while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so whether Jew or not Jew, so that the righteousness may be credited to them, whether Jew or Gentile. He's the father of all. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but he's a father to those who follow in the footsteps of faith, because that's the big deal. Our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So if the whole argument is in order to be right with God, you have to perform certain things. And the number one thing being this thing of circumcision, you have to be a Jew. You have to follow commands. You have to behave certain ways in order to be born again. Paul is blowing this argument out of the water saying not even Abraham did anything other than believe. He's saying, yes, he was circumcised, but that was after years. In fact, after, and you heard me explain this a few weeks ago. I don't want to have time to get into it now, but it was after Paul, uh, uh, Abraham used his flesh to bring about God's promise through Hagar. It was after that happened when God said, Hey, look, Jack, this promise isn't coming about by your flesh. And so he actually had Abraham cut off a piece of that flesh, the foreskin, to remind him forever and always, your flesh will never bring about my promise. It's always going to be faith. Stop trying to do what I've promised. For the promise, verse 13, to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through law. It was not through doing, but through the righteousness of faith. So this whole thing, this promise that God gave Abraham, it was received by faith. A dead womb. How could a dead womb do anything to do something to receive faith? You see this? It's a perfect uh, setup. If, if she had had some miscarriages, you know, she got gotten pregnant and had some miscarriages, like maybe this next one would work and we can like thank the Lord because it worked. But that wasn't even the case. It was a dead womb that then brought life through the, uh, via the child Isaac. For those, uh, for those who are of the law are heirs. I'm talking about Jews. Jews, they're, they're children of Abraham. But if that's how you think, if you think that the law produces this stuff, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified. What is Paul? Well, let me read the next verse. For the law brings about wrath, but there, where there is no law, there is no violation. I hear Paul saying that if okayness with God, that's righteousness, if okayness with God is based on law, based on doing, then it, uh, then it is 100% law. Meaning, here's an equation, a helpful equation. Grace 
plus law, if we're going to mix a little bit of law in to help us maintain our okayness with God, grace plus law equals what? Law. Write that down. Grace plus law equals law. What Paul is saying is there is something that you can do to maintain, to establish, to deepen, to strengthen your okayness with the God of the universe by your doing, then it absolutely nullifies faith. Faith is made void. Faith has no point. There is no point to law, to faith. It it makes it null and void. So if we're going to start mixing and, and he's, he's directly attacking this other group of people who are saying that, yes, Jesus, but you have to become a, a follower of Moses too. You have to become a Jew. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow these laws. He's directly attacking them saying, if that's how it works, then there is no faith. And if there is no faith and there is no promise and if there is no promise, then we have nothing. Verse 15. For this reason, because if you mix faith works to this whole thing, for this reason, this is why it has to be faith and faith alone. This is why it has to be dependency upon God and not dependency upon your flesh in order that it may be in accordance with grace. See, grace and works, grace and law, they just don't mix. We can try to mix them. We can try to. We can try to say, hey, Jesus gets you in the door. But now that you're in the door, here's how you get further in the door by. And we start coming up with different things that we pick and choose from the scriptures. But what are we in essence saying? Well, Jesus is good enough to get me in the door, but he's not good enough to take me all the way through to this life that he has for me. Jesus had something to say about this. He says what no one takes a brand new shirt or what does he say? An old shirt that has a hole in it. No one takes an old shirt that has a hole in it and then a new shirt and cut a piece out of that new shirt to then sew it onto that hole of the old shirt. Nobody does that. And why does nobody do that? Because once you wash that new one, that patch shrinks and it actually tears the old shirt even more so. So what do you do? Jesus says you throw out the old shirt with a big hole in it, talking about the law, the old system, and you just put on the new shirt. Why would he say that? Because if you mix the new and the old, two things happen. One, the old loses its punch. It loses its sting. The old was a diagnostic tool to show you your sin and death. If we then say, hey, we need to stay under this thing and maybe we can accomplish this thing. Maybe we can do this thing of the law. Maybe we actually achieve it. Then it loses its sting to show us just how dead we are apart from Christ. And if we just simply patch Jesus onto the Old Testament, then Jesus and his work on the cross becomes watered down and insufficient. You, he's forgiven me enough to get me into salvation, but he's not forgiven me of all of my sins. That's on me to keep account of. And so now we've lost the grandeur and the glory of Jesus, the son of God who took away sins. But we've also lost the glory and the grandeur of the law, which reveals our sin and death by trying to combine them together. So we must not combine them together. Paul says that this is why it has to be a faith and faith alone in order that it's in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, not only the Jews, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, 
a father of many nations I have made you. That was the promise. In the presence of him who, of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In what ways did Abraham believe God that God would give life to the dead? Let's, we've already talked about this a little bit. But in what ways did Abraham, what was he believing that God would give life to the dead? What, what did that look like for Abraham in his context? He wanted life to come from a dead what? A dead what? Womb. womb. He wanted life to come into this dead womb. And what Paul is saying, that it is God and God alone who gives life to the dead. And that's what Abraham was believing. Abraham was believing that God would call into being that which didn't exist. What didn't exist for Abraham? A, a son, but not even just one son, a multitude of nations that would come from him. Because remember what the promise was. The promise was that you would be the father of many nations. That didn't exist. And so what was Abraham believing? He was believing that out of a dead womb, a child would come. And not only a single child, but, um, but many nations would come, that God would call into being nations that didn't exist. That's what Abraham believed, and he was credited as righteous. Now let's think about this. What are we, what are we believing? What do we believe in the new covenant? Are we believing about a, a child coming from our wife? Is that what we're believing? No, that was all a shadow, a picture of something bigger and more glorious. What have we already seen in Romans? That there is something that's dead. What is it that's dead? Our heart. That's exactly right. He's already proven this in chapter 2, chapter 1 and 2. That there is a death, not a womb, but a heart that's dead. And what are we believing? What are we depending upon God for? We are believing on God that he will bring life to a dead heart. Not a dead womb. That was Abraham. But now this is us today in the new covenant that we're believing. What are we believing? That he would, he and he alone would bring life into this dead heart. The law diagnosed it, that it's dead. It is sinful, wicked. He quoted so many passages from the Old Testament last week. We said no one pursues after God. No one seeks him for all of sin. We saw this last week. And now what are we believing? We are believing like Abraham and Sarah, not a dead womb, but a dead heart, we're believing that it is God and God alone that is going to bring about a life from this dead heart. And I don't want to be overly graphic with young ears in the room, so I'll try my best. But Abraham and Isaac, uh, Abraham and Sarah could have tried and tried as hard as they wanted to apart from faith in God. And I'm sure they did for 90 some years. They did. And did that produce life? All the trying, did that produce life? All the physical activity, did that produce any life between the two of them when they came together? We reading between the lines here, right? Okay, good. No, all of that effort brought nothing. So what did they, realizing the deadness of her womb, all their chips were where? God, if you don't do this, it's not gonna happen. That's dependency. And that's where we must get to, where we look at our dead heart from Adam and we say, you know what? 
all the labor, all the work, all the doing and the not doing will produce no life. It cannot produce life. If there's going to be any life in this body and any life in this dead heart, all our chips are on God. You're going to be the one who brings life to this dead heart. You are going to be the one who calls into being that which does not exist. What does not exist between us and God before Christ? Intimacy, righteousness, holiness, oneness, cleanness, you name it. It didn't exist. And who is the one who calls that into being? It's God and God alone. You cannot create cleanness between you and God. No matter how many times you say, I'm sorry, please forgive me for fill in the blank. That is no good. It's like me going to the bank and saying, hey, bank, I'm going to pay it back. They're going to look at me and be like, yeah, right. It doesn't work. My word's no good. My word of I'm sorry is no good to God for him to forgive me of my sins. Did you know that? God does not forgive sins based off of I'm sorry's. What is his currency? What does Hebrews say is the currency by which must be paid in order for sins to be forgiven? It starts with a B. Blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. So next time you talk to God and say, God, I'm sorry for this. Will you please forgive me? Hey, is there any blood being shed in that? If there's not any blood, there is no forgiveness. And listen, I'm not encouraging to bleed. I'm encouraging to look at the one who did bleed, Jesus Christ, who took away your sins once and for all. And so Abraham was believing a child from a dead womb. He was believing descendants that didn't exist. What are we believing? We're believing a new life from a dead heart. We're believing righteousness from, that did not exist. Verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed. What does that mean, hope against hope? Meaning there was nothing else. He's going to say it in a second. He was 90-some years old. I'm pretty sure he tried it once or twice to do it, you know, the old-fashioned way. It didn't work. Hope against hope. We tried this all our life, Sarah. This ain't going to happen. We can try all we want to make ourselves okay with God, but if we don't come by dependency upon him, it's not going to happen. So that he might become, he believed, hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be. That was part of the promise. Verse 19, without being weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, meaning he looked at what he had to offer. <clears throat> I don't know if I want Paul to write my like obituary. <laughs> Or like, you know, what's another thing, you know, like uh, introduce me for like some sort of speech. Look at how he describes, I mean, Father Abraham. This is how he describes him. Now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. You know, that's how he describes him. And in the deadness of Sarah's womb, meaning they looked at themselves and they said, there's no way we could do this. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now, I have a question here for the Lord one day. And the question is this. Paul says that he did not waver in his faith. What's up with this whole Hagar thing, right? Well, here's, here's where I'm content with putting it for now. When did the Hagar thing happen? Before or after he was credited as righteous? After. It was after he was credited as righteous. 
So from the point at which Paul, uh, Abraham believed God and was credited as righteous, from that point forward, how did God in his infinite grace and mercy see Abraham's faith without waver? Because it began by faith and it will continue by faith. Even though we can look at it linearly and say, well, wait a second, there was sort of a hiccup here with Hagar. But from God's perspective, he was credited as righteous and not no longer holding his sins against him. So cool. Now that might be wrong, but that's just where I have to settle on that. A few more verses. And being fully assured that what God has promised, he, God, was able also to perform. That's the dependency. God, you said that the child would come from the dead womb. You said nations would come where there are no nations. And if that's going to happen, hope against hope, because there's no other way. I trust you. He has promised you that a heart of, of life, Ezekiel calls it a heart of flesh, meaning it's alive. A new heart fused together with his spirit would come. He, he promised that your righteousness would be his righteousness. How is that going to happen apart from him doing it? Let's just be honest. Therefore, it was also credit to him as righteousness. Not for his sake only was it written that it was credit to him, but for our sake only. Or also, in other words, Paul is saying this stuff was written in Genesis, not just for Abraham's sake, but so that we thousands of years later can look back and say, here's our evidence, our evidence that righteousness, okayness with God, oneness with him, intimacy with the father, it comes by faith faith and not by works, we can point back to Abraham and say, see, that's exactly how it worked for Abraham. It's how it works for us as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord from the dead. And we'll, we'll pick up this verse next week as we roll into chapter five. He who was talking about Jesus, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And we're going to start there actually next week when we go into chapter five. And so why is this really important? I hope we're seeing the progression of Paul's argument, his thought. He's saying the law shows us that we have, we're dead, we're filthy, we have no hope. And he gives a personal story about that in chapter seven, but we have no hope righteousness cannot come from the law, cannot come from doing righteousness comes apart from the law and I'll prove it. Let's look at Abraham. Righteousness came prior to some sort of form of law keeping, i.e. the uh, circumcision of his flesh. So here's our journey marker to kind of think on, to dwell on, to really hopefully massage deep into our hearts, into our heads, really. Our hearts already got this figured out. It's our heads that need to catch up. God has never made, God has never maintained. He's never made anyone, nor has he maintained anyone okay with him based on deeds. Never. Evidence, exhibit A, who? Abraham. He didn't make him right, and he didn't maintain him right based on his deeds. Rather, God always makes us okay with him based on dependence 
Will we depend on him? Will we trust him? Will we rely upon him? Will we believe him that he will do what he has promised? He's promised a new heart. He's promised righteousness. He's promised okayness with him. How long are we going to, we, not necessarily we in this room, but we religious thinking people, Christianity, how long are we going to think that we can do this and maintain this by our deeds? Last time I checked, last time I took an inventory of my deeds, I failed. You too. Don't look at me like that. So I think it's time that we move on to see that this started by faith, it continues by faith. And if you're going to be right with God 10 years from now, it's going to be by faith and nothing else. Abraham, exhibit A. Now next week, we turn to chapter uh, 5. Paul will get, starts to get into, now here's the nuts and bolts of how this worked. One man, Adam, came in, and because of one man's sin, all died, all lost it. You didn't have to do it. You didn't even have to sin. You already lost it because of Adam's sin. However, now the last Adam, Jesus, because of his death, all have died. And because of the resurrection, that was the verse that we just looked at a second ago, that means that all have been justified. Not all are saved. Not all are saved. He'll say that very clearly in chapter 5. Everyone's not saved, but all have been forgiven. He will say that very clearly in chapter 5. All are forgiven. Not all are saved. How does salvation work? By faith in the Son of God. By believing. We are justified by His death, chapter 5, but we are saved by his L. What is it? Life. By his life being in us. So we'll pick up on that next week in chapter five. Any thoughts? Any questions? Any um, what? What about or something we might not have stone we didn't turn over? There's a couple of things in there I de- definitely didn't turn over for time's sake. Any thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> Historical context question, maybe another answer to. Uh, so, do you know when this was written to the Romans? Mm-hmm. Was the church in Rome uh, primarily made up of Jews who had converted to Christianity or uh, Gentiles? Yeah, right. Who had become Christians. And you think that it kind of influenced the way he wrote? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think we'll see some um, evidence at the end where he starts, he actually addresses some people that he's not met. Remember, he's not been there. But he's heard of some people, and he names some people. And the names that he identifies, there's some Hebrew names, and there's also some Greek names. Um, and so in those names, we can assume, you know, some, uh, would it be ethnicity or, you know, some origin. But uh, outside of that, I mean, I, I don't know if any, I think we can speculate definitely Jews from P- Pentecost, like we talked about in week one. But uh, you have to also assume that this message has gone further than just the, Ju- the Jews into uh, Gentiles who either had converted to Judaism or just, you know, word on the street sort of a deal. Because if you think about it, why would he be so adamant about saying this is apart from the law, apart from the law, apart from the law, if there wasn't some influence in J- Rome trying to get Gentiles under the law, right? And, um, and so I-, I would have to think by deduction, not necessarily by like chapter such and such verse such and such says that there is a mixture of both for sure. Jews who are trying to maintain their okayness by their deeds, right? Faith plus, but also Gentiles who, who came in by faith, but thought that 
they needed to go further into the law to get better with God. And that's where I keep coming back to that opening statement, chapter 1, verse 17. The righteousness of God, it's from faith to faith, to faith. And where's it going from there? To faith. We're not going beyond this. We're not, there's nothing beyond it. In fact, to go to law-based is actually to go where? Backwards. See, that's so counterintuitive, isn't it? It's so counterintuitive to me. I'm trying to think of myself as a 20-year-old and a 30-year-old when I was, you know, before I discovered what the gospel even was. As a religious Christian, I would, I would definitely say faith is a great place to start, but we got to go on from that into how we're behaving, how we're doing. That's what's going to measure our okayness. But really the truth is to, to do that would be go backwards, which is what Hebrew says. To fall from grace is actually to revert back to a law-based thinking. It's backwards, not forwards. It's digression, not progression. So I would have to say a mixture, but I can't say, you know, such and such, you know, book says this was the geopolitical makeup. We do know that there were Christians in Rome, a lot of them, at a certain point by Nero, because he blamed the fires on the Christians just to turn public opinion against the Christians. We do know that. Great question, though. But it, it sounds to me that there's a mixture of the different groups, for sure. In fact, we, we can even look at chapter 6 and 7, really chapter 7, where he says, now to those who know the law. And he gives an illustration from the law. So it sounds like to me, he's like, the, whether they are Gentiles or Jews, it's people who are trying to do this thing by law. Do you not know the law and how it says? And then he gives the illustration in chapter seven. So there's definitely a Jewish influence one way or the other. Yeah. I really like what you said about um, why God still used Abraham as strong in faith in spite of him trying to... We would say stumbling. Yeah. yeah. And... I mean, that's huge what that says to us. Yeah. Even if we sin, God isn't viewing us as having, or that we're needing to, oh, I have to build up my faith again, or yeah. he still sees us the same regardless. Right. Yeah. I, I, it, yeah. If that's in fact what it means, and I throw the, yeah, right. I'll certainly, because Hebrews says the same thing, that Abraham did not waver in his faith. Hebrews says it. So I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. So you got two guys out there saying the same thing, and it's like, well, what about Hagar? But I think it's from the perspective of that's after his crediting as righteousness. And his, his righteousness didn't waver. It was, he was righteous, period, because it was given, it was credited, it was a gift. If it was an earnings, then his earnings would have, you know, decreased. He'd have been indebted. And he'd have to make that up by some other action. But that's not the system, thankfully. Great. Awesome. Yes. So Abraham was credited as righteous even though Christ has become righteous? That's a great, great point. And the answer is yes, because he what? He believed. He just believed God. Now, was Abraham, here's the deeper question, I think, was Abraham born again? See, I'd have to say no. He wasn't born again because that didn't come until Christ was risen from the dead in Acts, and then subsequently in Acts chapter two. But he was credited as righteous, not born again, not what we have. He, he's not what we are. We have the righteousness of God infused in us in the new man. 
He didn't have that. He was credited. He was, he had the, the, the label of righteous. He had a credit on his account. We're not just simply credited. We actually are righteous, if that makes sense, by new birth, not by works, always by new birth. But yeah, it was by belief. It was by faith in God. So he had not, left, he had not received the life of God. No. I would have to say no. There's different people that would say yes. I would have to say no. Because um, I think, I, 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 yeah, I would have to say definitely no. Because that's only in, in the new covenant. And the new covenant had not come. The new covenant wasn't established until the one who made the covenant, what? Died. And that didn't happen in time and space until the cross. And so, in fact, he, Ephesians 4 talks about how in his death, Jesus descends into Sheol to lead the captives free. And I think that was like Abraham, Abraham, the ones in Abraham's bosom who at that point were now given a new life, given a new, new, uh, new spirit to then lead them into heaven. Jesus himself being the first to enter into heaven. So, um, so I would say no, that they were not born again, but they were credited as righteous. Yeah, right. I always find it interesting that it was 25 years between the time that God promised Abraham he'd be following many nations to the time that he had Isaac. Okay. It's like one of those things that, you know, if there's any doubt about it being unable to be from natural means at 75, it <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. The thing I take from that is just kind of the comfort of knowing that, you know, even when it seems like nothing's happening, that God's promises are still... Yeah. 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 You know, exactly right. If, if the, if her womb wasn't working at 74, because she was a few years younger, right? than he was, then it definitely wasn't going to be working all of a sudden at 94 or 99 or whatever it was when she finally, you know, conceived. Um, and that, I mean, if she became pregnant at 70 something, that'd be a miracle in and of itself, I'm sure. But yet alone 90 something. And God just has a way of showing off. He just has a way of, you know, if she got pregnant at 70-something, this thought just came to mind. Like, there could be perhaps, like, you know, we might have to consult with Guinness's Book of World Records, but, like, there could be perhaps, like, someone, you know, that could maybe happen. But you throw another 25 years on that and get into your late 90s or 90, whatever she was in her 90s, that just doesn't happen. That's impossible. And I love when the disciples, when Jesus told the disciples, it is easier for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, for for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they said, then who? If it's not for the rich, then who? And God said, Jesus said, what man considers impossible, God makes possible. Isn't that cool? I mean, that's just... It is impossible for our dead hearts to be made alive spontaneously by our actions. We can change behavior. We can change outward activity, but that doesn't address the issue that the law reveals a dead heart. So, and that's what he means by we, we don't nullify the law. We establish the law. We're, sh- we're believing the law that we've got dead hearts. Now we set it aside and we turn to Jesus and Jesus alone. Awesome. Any other thoughts? Good stuff, man. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. Who? Uh, what can Abraham do? What can Sarah say? You know, like t- I mean, like again, not to get 
too overly like detailed here, but like, I mean, she's, she's like coming out of the hospital with a walker and a newborn, you know? I mean, how can she get the glory in this? Or he, right? It's just, and so the only, the only possibility is this is, this is God. The only possibility. The only possibility that you can have a, a heart of life, the life of God in you, the only possibility, whether you believe it or not, is God himself. And if you don't believe that, try another 25 years of law-based living. Maybe then you'll get it. Maybe then you'll see it. People who think that they can do enough good to get God's heaven, to get in God's heaven, they're just not, they're just not believing the law. They're not trying hard enough at the law. And to which Jesus says, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery. Well, I want you to understand if you even have lust in your heart, you're guilty. So you try a little bit harder, you search a little bit deeper and you're never going to measure up. Ultimately, he says at the end or towards the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, just be as perfect as who? God. Be as perfect as the Father in heaven. Then you'll get in. Uh, how do I do that? Bingo. You can't. You believe. And that's it. Awesome. Well, we'll see where this goes in chapter 5 because uh, he's not done making, uh, what's it called, frenemies? You know, he, he's, he, this is ticking people off as they read it, I'm sure, um, because it can't be this. But there's also people who are just celebrating the freedom in Christ as I read it, I'm sure. Just like today, just like today. Father, we thank you for this good news. We thank you that it is challenging. We thank you that it is rich, um, that, that all of this that we see with Abraham, Abraham, Sarah, it was written not only for their benefit, but it was written for our benefit today so that we can truly see the deadness, not of wombs, but the deadness of our heart. And as you brought life into a dead womb where life had no business coming from, in the same way, by faith in you, you bring about life from our dead hearts. Where there was death, there is now life. And so, Father, may we believe it. May we believe what you've done. May we never turn. May we, may we never regress from faith in you towards obedience of laws, rules, and commandments. May we walk by faith, not by sight. So, Father, we thank you. Thank you for our time. Thank you for everyone who is here. May you continue to reveal to us the life of Christ within. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.